everyone. We're going to, we've just come out of closed session. There's nothing to report. We're reconvening now as the County Board of Supervisors for our special uh, meeting uh, on the budget workshop. So uh, what I'd like to do right now is call for public comment uh, on general items. If there's anyone here to speak on, uh, well, frankly, items not on the agenda or if you want to speak on the agenda, we'll take public comment at the beginning. We'll have our two presentations and then take public comment again at the end. So anyone who wishes to speak, now's the time to come to the podium. Uh, we'll, then we'll go online. All right, I'm not seeing anyone in the chambers. Let's go online to see if there's anyone there. First speaker, Sling Smith, please unmute. As we walk around this issue of building housing, one of the questions that comes to my mind, first and foremost, is given the requirement to build 14 to 15,000 houses in Marin and I don't know how many in the rest of the Bay Area it begs the question where are the resources the labor and materials the appliances come from who are going to uh, or that are going to uh, facilitate all this construction and when this construction occurs so much of it's subsidized by the taxes that the homeowners and property owners of the county pay. Uh, they're going to be directly competing for labor and resources with all the property owners in this county and all over the Bay Area, California in general. And this competition is going to raise the price of all the building goods and labor available that otherwise might be available for those of us who own property to maintain and improve our property. Instead, we're going to be facing a likely consequence if this actually comes to pass of a vast amount of price increase inflation in everything associated with construction and property maintenance and improvements. And it's going to fall heavily on those of us, particularly the elderly people who are on fixed incomes, who are going to have to let their houses deteriorate probably in the future as a consequence. Thank you. The next speaker is Eva. Please unmute. Um, thanks. I just want to remind the public that workforce housing, that was what Marin City was originally. And the history of Marin City and what happened there is really, really important. And I do want to thank Felicia Gaston for uh, compiling a lot of the documents that are available in uh, archives. Um, they're really important. Uh, the California, the Auntie Kent uh, California room um, at the County Library is, is a vital resource. Uh, and that's where I was able to locate the Risley letter, thanks to Felicia Gaston. Um, that letter is really important because it tells you two really critical things. It tells you that the county was responsible for segregating Marin City in the post-war years, and that it was the rent money paid by residents of Marin City to the county that permitted the county 
to pay for uh, the the uh, the land that they bought that is Marin City, and that might seem an extraordinary claim until you look at the price tag for the land, and then you look at how many wartime cottages the county was collecting rent on. Uh, the total price was, I'm going to say, approximately $800,000. It was well under a million dollars for the total parcel. And they used the rent money from uh, what was, by that time, a primarily black community to buy the land. And given the extreme uh, racial discrimination, uh, you know, failing to heed the Rumford Law, fair housing law. There is an excellent argument for restitution. I note that um, this has never made it onto the agenda. Uh, even as we discuss reparations, there's no discussion of land reparations in Red City, and there should be. So that should be in the back of your mind as you look at workforce housing. Thank you. Person Peters, there are no additional speakers in the queue. Okay, we'll turn it back then to our county administrator and our community development agency. All right, well, good afternoon, supervisors. And I was just going to start off for individuals maybe new to this uh, workshop, uh, just to give a high-level overview. We spent approximately six hours yesterday. These are informational workshops. We're not making any policy decisions. Our goal is really to provide both the public and the board update on some of our top priorities. Um, and so yesterday we spoke about an overview on the budget, our racial equity efforts, our continuous improvement efforts. We also talked about uh, recruitment and retention, as well as an update on our sea level rise and climate change investments. And along those lines this afternoon, we're looking forward to uh, two of our top priority areas uh, on affordable housing and workforce housing, as well as homelessness and permanent supportive housing. We've made substantial investments in these areas over the last several years and wanted to provide an update about where we've been and where we're going. Uh, I did want to point out that our wrap-up is tomorrow afternoon at 1 o'clock in which we would be identifying the follow-up issues. We would also take uh, general public comments and talk about any work plan um, highlights with our departments as well. So just with that overview, I'm going to turn it over to Lili and look forward to this uh, presentation and the discussions with your board and the public. Thank you, Matthew. Uh, Lili Thomas with the Community Development Agency. I'm the Deputy Director where I oversee our Housing and Grants Division. And if we can pull up the presentation. Oh, I, do I need to do something? Okay. So while they're doing that, um, the agenda that we're going to be going through today is an overview of funding sources that we administer, um, and as Matthew mentioned, where we have been um, and where we are going, and then we're going to focus on some emerging issues that are coming up. Sorry about that. So the, our agenda is here. We're going to go overview of funding sources, where we've been, where we're going, and some emerging issues that we're going to be focusing on. Um, 
And to start, um, I'd like to give you an overview of the funding sources we have for housing. And these funds are used countywide to encourage, facilitate, construct, and improve affordable housing. Um, and to put this in context, I thought it would be important to look at the cost of development in Marin for developing an affordable home. And you can see on this slide that in Marin, we are considerably higher cost for developing an affordable unit than the surrounding Bay Area counties. And this is as of October 2022. You can see that some of the other counties are in the $500,000 ranges. Um, up to the $700,000 ranges and eight hundred, dollars but we are the highest at over $900,000 for the development of one affordable home. So I, I thought that would be important to focus on that for a minute before we look at the how much money we have invested in, in affordable housing. So these are the funding sources that we administer through our division. Um, we have community development block grant and home funds, which are federal grants um, that come through us as an entitlement community. The housing trust fund that your board has allocated significant resources in to, and then a number of smaller um, state funds that we have applied for. Some are competitive and some are um, formula grants, as well as the local Measure W, which is a transit occupancy tax um, in West Marin. So together, these funds are over $40 million um, of funding. Um, so looking at how many units we have developed um, since 2015, um, we have developed in these different categories, we have developed between acquisition, conversion, new development, and then rehab of existing homes. We have developed, or we funded over um, almost 1,200 affordable units, and of those, 785 are in the last three years. So there's been a significant uptick. Um, so in addition to the funding sources mentioned, we have brought in new funding sources that we are now administering. Um, so those each have different funding priorities, income requirements, reporting, and auditing. Um, so each of these programs has those different requirements um, and now have been kind of integrated into our, into our process and our workload. Um, they include the permanent local housing allocation, um, which it comes through a tax on a recordation fee when a document is recorded, and those are um, an ongoing source of um, housing dollars that come to our county. Um, so looking back at um, where we have been, so in addition to administering those funding sources, our team has been busy with implementing new funding sources and programs, as well as managing existing ones and planning for new housing. We are looking at our work using the three P's framework, and that is production, including development of new housing and conversion from non-residential to housing, preservation, including conversion of market rate to affordable, and rehabilitation improvement of existing housing, and then protection, which is finally protect protection of existing low-income renters through policy actions. So starting with production, um, we have funded 677 new permanently affordable homes, and those include rental housing for families, 
senior housing with on-site medical services, veterans housing, home ownership opportunities for low-income families, as well as permanent support supportive housing to serve um, people coming out of homelessness. An example of one of these projects is the Oak Hill development, um, which is in unincorporated Larkspur. It was identified through the state's excess land program, and so the land is being donated by the state. And then there's going to be at least 230 new homes, including some developed by Eden um, through a tax credit project and a partnership through the county, Marin County Office of Education and um, education housing, and that will be housing for educators, school staff, as well as county staff. So that's a, an example of workforce housing likely on both sides of, of the project. Um, an example of the conversion, we have done conversion to permanently affordable home resulting in 165 new homes. And those included a closed military facility at the Coast Guard in Point Reyes, a motel, the, the Casa Buena in Corte Madera through the Home Key program, as well as two vacant office buildings in San Rafael and Larkspur that you'll likely hear more about from Gary in the next presentation. Um, We've also focused on preservation and anti-displacement um, of 219 um, homes have been preserved and converted to permanently affordable homes through purchasing existing um, naturally occurring affordable housing. And most of those residents are low income and at risk of displacement if the uh, properties were purchased by a market rate and, and rents were increased. Lily, was the 219 in the past year these figures that you're quoting is in the past one year, or? No, I'm sorry. These were during the past housing elements. Housing element. Thank you. Another example, an example of that preservation strategy was with Bridge Housing, where they um, acquired a, two buildings of totaling 125 homes, and those were occupied by low-income, locally employed um, tenants who were paying, primarily paying below market rent. Um, the preservation is, is through renovation of existing um, affordable homes. So we have invested in 291 homes that are already occupied by low-income tenants. And those funds come through our federal grants program through the Community Development Block Grant and Home Funds. And this is an example in downtown San Rafael of the um, of apartment that's occupied by, by families. Um, then the final P is protection. And a lot of the protection examples that we had was during the pandemic response. So um, our team collaborated on um, a number of actions that were focused around preventing homelessness, including the adopting the eviction moratorium, working around the, on the rental assistance program, the room key and home key programs. And again, these are collaborations with our um, colleagues in Health and Human Services that you'll hear more about on the next, um, in the next presentation. Finally, um, collaboration has been a big part of our workload. Um, where we have a number of, we work with the housing working group, which is made up of staff from all of the cities and towns where we've worked on 
both housing element and housing policies around encouraging and facilitating housing as well as around those those three P's that I mentioned. Um, and of course we couldn't um, not mention the work that we've been doing around the housing element that was um, after an 18 month process adopted by your board by the statutory deadline. It included the meaningful actions to encourage and facilitate housing as required by the state. We rezoned sites to accommodate affordable and multifamily housing at all income levels. Um, and we recently received a letter from HCD last week requesting additional modifications to our programs before we meet all of our statutory requirements. So while we're disappointed to not receive certification at this time, we are pleased that no changes are needed to sites, zoning, or land use, and we will and we anticipate that we will be able to address the changes in, in the near future. Um, one of the things that was a big focus on this housing element was around a robust community engagement process. And we um, intend to, you know, we involved all segments of our community with a strong emphasis on those least likely to participate. And we plan to build on this work that we did and incorporate this level of community engagement into our program implementation and all aspects of our work as we move forward. And as we are talking about the housing element implementation, it's worth noting that our regional housing allocation numbers have gone up significantly since the previous um, cycle, where as we mentioned earlier this morning, we needed to plan for 187 homes. And now under our current um, housing allocation, we are planning for 3,569 homes at all income levels. Um, so as we um, look at where we're going, there's a few areas that I would like to highlight. Um, the first being our um, new focus on fair housing and civil rights known as affirmatively furthering fair housing. And what this means is to proactively take meaningful actions to overcome patterns of residential segregation, promote fair housing choice, eliminate disparities, in opportunities and foster inclusive communities free of discrimination. So that's the requirement to affirmatively further fair housing, which is now incorporated into all aspects of the housing element. So that includes outreach, it includes sites and programs and policies. And as we're starting the implementation, our work, it was a lot of work to get here, but really our work has just begun um, and our programs need to be very Specific, we have specific actions and timeframes that we'll be working on to implement those programs. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, HCD has requested additional changes to our current, to our housing element draft, and um, specifically around programs and policies which are intended to address that affirmatively furthering fair housing requirement. So some of the programs and or some of the programs that we'll be focusing on um, in the first year of the housing element include um, initiating the Marin City Community Plan, increasing fair housing outreach to our specifically to um, housing providers and landlords, promoting continuing to promote regional collaboration on housing as we have been doing through the housing working group 
and um, evaluating and adopting a short-term rental regulation policy to address the impacts of removing um, rental properties from the residential into the commercial and the impact that that's having on our communities, as well as beginning out, um, community outreach on tenant protection strategies to prevent displacement and affirmatively further fair housing choices. Um, so in addition to those things, we're also focusing on a number of emerging issues that, that we have been noting, and that one of those is to, that continuing that collaboration with our cities and towns. Um, we'll be working with the board subcommittee to revisit housing trust funding um, policies and priorities to ensure that those dollars are used most effectively and in alignment with what your board's guidance is. Um, and then um, asking your board to consider adopting a financial policy as part of the budget that would allocate a minimum of $5 million a year for the next five years for affordable housing to help us meet those um, uh, regional housing need goals that we talked about earlier specifically around our lower income um, and workforce housing needs. Um, also, um, the renovation of Golden Gate Village is one thing that we'll be partnering with, with the Housing Authority, trying to identify resources, providing them with technical expertise that we have on that, so providing some support to that. Um, considering additional opportunities for housing for county workforce um, as an emerging issue that's coming up, and supporting the Bay Area Finance Authority, where we expect something on the ballot in 2024, to provide a permanent source of funding for affordable housing, again, focusing on those three Ps. So with that, I would like to thank um, my team, um, Aline Tanillion and Genevieve Honker for their work in putting this presentation together and your board for your support in um, furthering this work around providing affordable and supportive housing in our communities. So that ends my presentation. I'm happy to answer any questions you may have. Thank you, Lily. I'm going to ask the board members uh, if you have questions. You want to, please, Mary? Thank you, Lily. I just have a couple questions about terms that you've used. So, it, are, what is rehab, and is that the same interchangeable word as renovation? Yes. So rehab is a is rehab of an existing or renovation. Sorry if I use them interchangeably, but yes, they're both of an existing affordable home. And does that require that the occupant is the owner, or can it be a uh, a rental situation? No, these are these are a renovation of existing deed restricted affordable housing. Um, we do also fund the housing authority through community development block grants for low-income homeowners. There's a rehab loan program that they have been administering, which is now actually being transferred to Habitat, who will be administering that program. And that's available for low-income homeowners to do renovations, um, in, you know, any kind of a home improvement renovations. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Lili. Um I wondered if your team had any chance to look into why Marin uh, affordable housing price would be so high. Yeah. I suspect it has to do with land costs, but 
I, I just wondered if you looked at that. So Enterprise is the one who did that survey of it, and they didn't, they, they, there's a couple of things that they pointed out. I don't think that they did a full analysis of what, of why, but the things that they pointed out were high land cost, as you're noting, and a, um, a long, um, a discretionary review process, which adds expense to it. So if you have a process that takes years to go through an entitlement process, then that drives up the cost, which is one of the reasons why we have expedited that in our housing element for our lower income um, sites. So in order to address that as a, as a constraint. And I think it, it is an example of why preservation is a much better way to spend your money sometimes because I think our preservation numbers are down considerably lower in maybe the one to $200,000 range. The preservation tends to be less expensive on the upfront, but the ongoing maintenance of those buildings tends to be more expensive. So one of the things that our one of our developers has run into who's done a recent acquisition is deferred maintenance on a property, and that's often much harder to fund. You know, if we invested ours in the acquisition, but how do you figure out how to fund those ongoing renovation costs and that, you know, there may have been some work that hadn't been done. So that can be expensive, um, more expensive over time than new construction where, you know, there's very little maintenance needed. And in, in a sort of related but unrelated subject matter, we've heard a lot about AMI in Marin being way too high, it doesn't reflect the actually actual income of our residents. And we heard about it in Marin City last week with the A25 project, and I'm also hearing about it on the coast with our land trusts where they have things to rent at a certain AMI, but people actually don't make enough money to actually pay that rent. And so I just wondered how that all plays into this. I know we don't set the AMIs, but it's just something that we need to be aware of as we're setting these benchmarks, I think. Yeah, that's a really good point. So because Marin has such a high AMI, area median income or AMI, it skews that. So every so when you get to low income, low income is much higher in this community than it is in other communities because our area median income is so much higher. And that means that somebody who is in a service industry job, for example, or who is on a fixed income, who's retired, or living on Social Security, is extremely low and often way below that. And so when rents are set at 60% of the area median income, like they typically are in a tax credit project, it isn't low enough to really reach those many of our workforce or, or folks who are living on a fixed income. And so often the only way to address those is through Section 8 vouchers, and we, oft and we don't have enough of those. So, you know, advocating for additional vouchers from the federal level is something that we, we definitely need to do to be able to reach those folks because it's really hard to support a building. Um, it's ongoing maintenance without some kind of an operating subsidy if you are serving really extremely low-income tenants. So that's something, kind of talking about those priorities is something that I'll do with the, with the board subcommittee as we, as we think about the best ways to use our dollars. Okay, Katie and then Eric. Yeah, thank you. Hey, Lily, so back to that um, cost per unit and 
um, without knowing how deep Enterprise got into this. Um, is that an average cost per unit, spread of cost, single family to multi-unit? Thanks for that clarification. No, that is for an affordable deed-restricted unit. And it included a, the projects that were in the pipeline or under construction at, during that window that they studied. I think it was 2018 through 2022. Um, and so, you know, one thing is it was probably a fairly small subset selection compared to the other communities. So one project costing a lot more could have skewed it. And so I'm interested, and they'll, they'll do this again. So I'm interested to see how that compares, given that in the past, you know, we have a significant number of units that are under construction now. So I'm hoping that that will come down. But um, it, it did just include um, deed-restricted affordable. Which would primarily be multifamily yes. at some level. Okay, yes. thank you. Um, and then when we talk about... Uh, when you talk about units funded by year, and you know, just to be clear, uh, in 2022 we had 369. That's that's we were partial funders in Absolutely. helping those come uh, come online, and I just think folks mm -hmm. need to understand that. And so, do, what is what is sort of the average our average contribution across those different areas in terms of those units? So typically, we fund with our affordable housing trust. Uh, about $50,000 a unit. Um, and the CDBG and home can depend. Um, we typically only restrict a certain number of units in those, even though, you know, our funding, and so our funding is restricted to a specific number of units, but we don't have a formula in the community development block grant and home dollars. But I, so I would say closer to, you know, it, it's it's fairly wide range on 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 those dollars. Okay, but okay, yeah. so but it's so, a but overall, sorry, overall, ours is a is a fraction is usually a fraction, it's particularly in larger developments. When we're funding a small development in West Marin, for example, and we're funding it with our housing trust funds, with our state funds, and with the um, measure W, then it's a larger proportion. But when we're funding a larger multifamily housing, for example, the Vivalon, ours is a tiny fraction of the overall budget. Most of the funding is coming from state and federal tax credits. Okay. And then when, so when we think about that allocating going forward $5 million a year, we would be making an estimate on how, on how many units that that $5 million might leverage combined yes. with all those sources. Yes. Um, and then uh, uh, on the new funding sources slide, which I guess I gather speaks specifically to maybe this year or last year as opposed to ongoing forever commitments. These are new during this housing element cycle. And so will, they, the will they last all? So, so the... So Measure W is an ongoing funding source. Um, PLHA, the permanent local housing source, is a ongoing. Some of them are competitive. We applied for some. The local housing trust fund, for example, was competitive, and so that was one time we can apply again. 
um, but they're so they're not all. I'm ongoing. looking at the rental assistance mm -hmm. at seven million, almost eight million dollars. And the the rental assistance is is really associate is not an ongoing funding source that's associated with response to the pandemic. We do have funds that are still being administered through a contract um, with Community Action Marin. But once those funds are expended, there won't be ongoing another renewal of those funds. I just wanted that. Yes, to be thanks really for pointing clear. that out. Um, Okay, that's um, really all my questions uh, right now. I have some comments on the back end, maybe. Thanks. Thank you, Lily. Uh, one of the emerging issues that you had identified was to revisit the Housing Trust funding priorities. Um, can you maybe speak a little more to that? Uh, I imagine, and, and kind of the balance of how do we make sure that we can really be nimble with that and respond when a uh, you know, a preservation opportunity comes forward, but also have some sort of framework by which we make decisions. So we currently have some fairly general guidelines that govern the Housing Trust Fund, which include um, we can fund anywhere in the county with a priority for unincorporated areas. Our funds can be used for acquisition, preservation, or new construction, but not renovation of existing. Um, we prioritize based on the income level that we serve, so more dollars typically go in if we're serving somebody who's at a, a lower income level. Um, that said, when we considered, uh, we in the past you know, few months, we've considered two, your board has done two really large investments in acquisition of existing multifamily housing, and at the most recent one, um, in January, I believe it was, your board asked us to go back and kind of reconsider those funding guidelines. So I'll be working with our board subcommittee on looking at, we, we had an initial conversation about what information would be helpful for them. So we're comparing kind of how other counties prioritize between funding within unincorporated and within cities and towns. Um, how, what is the balance between funding new construction as opposed to acquisition, and should we be setting some priorities around that? So we'll be continuing that conversation and, and getting guidance from the board subcommittee on that. Okay. Great. As, you know, especially with the additional funds that we're putting in there, I, I think it's great. I, I, I hope we have the problem of there being so much need out there, but then it does become an issue and you have to prioritize and maybe have to pick one project over another. Um, it would be a good problem to have, but we, we know that that situation can come before us. So thank you. Yes, that, that would be a good problem to have. And also, we will continue to identify other competitive funding sources that we can get from the state. Um, as we have with the, the local housing trust and a couple of other funding sources. So we'll continue to try to identify those. And you, we can use our local housing trust funds to leverage those, what we, the state often does to make it more competitive. If you match your, them with your, your local dollars, then you can get those. You're more competitive for them. And I assume part of that priority could be whether or not if, if the preservation opportunity is in a local jurisdiction, and if they're willing to step up and provide some funding in that, then maybe they could be more competitive. Um, I assume that's all being looked at. Yeah, that was one of the um, one of the issues that the board subcommittee also identified is kind of what the role of a local city or town, if if the county was going to fund within that. Great, thank you. Thank you. And I guess I, I just I was thinking I probably should have said this at the beginning, but on Monday we talked about. Um, 
adding, you know, so as Lily mentioned, we've allocated about $10 million for preservation over the last six months uh, around uh, those developments. Um, with the adoption of the housing element, we definitely recognize the need to, you know, increase funding into the housing trust even more than we've already done. And so we're talking about $7.25 million being added in April from our un unassigned balance from uh, our close of last fiscal year. And then uh, we baked in $25 million over the next five years in our budget projection as well. So you're looking at $32 million more over the next uh, five years um, as part of our budget planning. Lee, I had one follow-up question. Um, on the preservation front, um, do we have, I can't recall as part of the housing element program, um, any anything that looks towards identifying, and I know we've done this in the past, a deed restricted uh, units that are out there currently that are gonna be sunsetting at some point in the near future? Yes, thanks for asking that. We do have a program that's in the housing element where we monitor what the state calls expiring deed restrictions. And so if there's ones that are at risk of the deed restriction expiring and us losing those units and that affordability, then that's something that we're, we would be monitoring. Um, fortunately, most of the ones that are coming up in this cycle are owned by um, mission-driven affordable housing developers, and so they're usually looking for ways that they can refinance. But that, that is something that we are monitoring and would work with those, those housing providers. Thank you. Great. A lot of my questions have been answered, Lily, but I'll, I'll go over a few others. Uh, just as others had asked about the affordability or the cost of our building new units, multifamily, uh, I just wanted to support the idea of getting more detail on it. Just if there are things that we can do at the local level to reduce our costs, it would be helpful to know what those are. Um, on your slide on funding sources, just a clarification. These sources are these... Oh, I see. They're 2018 through 2022. So these are, they could fluctuate depending yes. on what we get. Okay. Yes. That's helpful. Um, on your units funded by year, what, what is our total number of housing units in, in unincorporated? Do you happen to recall from? I don't, but I can follow okay. up with you. That we would have be a, great. We have an inventory of all the affordable housing that is deed restricted within both the unincorporated and the incorporated numbers, so I can okay. go back to that. Great. Um, let's see. I wonder if, uh, in our emerging issues, and also you had a separate slide on affirmative, affirmatively furthering fair housing, and I just wonder if you could elaborate just a little more. You said that the, our, the work that we would do is outreach sites, programs, and policies, but can you give just a little more definition of what that entails as we embark on more of that? Yeah, so the, the state's requirement um, to affirmatively further fair housing was implemented, uh, you know, under the Obama administration, they had adopted this requirement to do an analysis of fair housing analysis in any county that was an entitlement community that received federal dollars would be required to do that, as well as housing authorities and a number of other entities. 
And so we had embarked on that process under the Obama administration. Um, that was the work that um, Liz Darby had done with us under the analysis of impediments to fair housing choice and really looking at kind of patterns of segregation in our community, what resources were missing, and then coming up with actions to address those. Under um, the previous administration, under the Trump administration, they walked that policy back. And at that point, the state decided to adopt the affirmatively furthering fair housing requirement into the housing element. And so what that did is it said that all of our actions through the housing element had to be looked at through that lens. So we had to start with doing outreach. How are we going to do outreach that was going to... Um, address and include folks who are typically not part of that and people who are in the protected classes. And so we did that throughout the whole housing element. We also looked at all of our sites with that lens, and then we have programs and policies that we need to take that are intended to address the barriers that were identified to fair housing choice through the housing element. So, for example, um, we heard a lot about worries about displacement of renters and the fact that many of our um, renters are people of color who are overrepresented in f renters who are paying over 30% of their income for rent. So what policies and programs can we look at that? There was an interest in looking at homeownership opportunities and f using a land trust to focus on that. So that's another program and policy that we're looking at that is intended to affirmatively further fair housing by looking at increasing home ownership opportunities for people. Okay. So those are some examples. Does yeah. that answer your question? Yes, it does. Okay. Thank you very much. And two, two last questions. Um, one on your emerging uh, issues. Uh, promote regional collaboration on housing. I just wondered if you could say a little mm -hmm. more about what, what, what is being contemplated on that. Yeah, so through the housing working group that we have that's made up of planning staff um, from all the jurisdictions, we've been working together on housing element policy. We've gotten some grants and administered those, so we're updating our inclusionary policies as a group. Most of the cities and towns are participating with us, and we're trying to have more uniformity. So an inclusionary policy is when a market rate development develops and then is required to set aside a portion of those units as affordable housing. We're trying to make it so that throughout the county we have more similar policies. So it's not in one city they're asking for $10,000 and another one they're asking for $300,000 so that there's more uniformity between fees and requirements. It makes it simpler for developers and it just makes it, you know, there's, there, it's less, it's easier for people to understand. So that's an example of that kind of collaboration. We're also looking at ways that we could collaborate on housing element implementation, particularly around those requirements to those fair housing requirements because every city and town is having to do that. So what are ways that we could work together on implementing them? And so we we think that there's a lot of opportunity to do that and we'll continue to work with them. That sounds good. And my last question, Lily, is just on your emerging issues. Uh, last slide. Um, the renovation of Golden Gate Village is uh, listed, and so is that a is that a preservation strategy? Is that where that falls? Yes, uh, and you know it's the housing authority is a partner that we work with closely on a number of programs. Our staff has some expertise that maybe they don't, and so how can we support them? What funding sources can we identify as we're working with them? And yes, that would be a one of those preservation strategies of preserving existing affordable homes and improving them. 
you very much. Any last questions? Mary. Uh, yes. Quick follow-up. So um, I appreciate the discussion about the collaboration with cities and towns. And I feel like over the last 18 months, sort of, we saw how robust, you know, your team and engagement was and how the cities and towns really struggled with the amount of work that the housing element required. And so I appreciate that um, effort to collaborate, I think in particular with these issues around affirmatively furthering fair housing. Um, I guess my sense on some of the cities and towns is it's just sort of trying to barely keep up with what Rena is throwing at them and not being able to go into those bigger policy reasons and education. Um, and so I hope that there's some opportunity there to you know, really collaborate in that regard. Yeah, thank you for that. I think that you're right. I'm especially the smaller cities and towns where there's no staff and they're having to address this really complicated laws around housing and fair housing and civil rights stuff. It's a really it, it's a lot to do. Um, one of the things that we did around that is we at the beginning of the housing element cycles. We went around and presented what affirmatively furthering fair housing was to each of the city councils so that everybody could kind of start all of our electeds and we did it with your board so that we could all start with the same baseline of what is it, what is it and how does that relate to our housing element. So I th would expect that you know, we do kind of similar work with our as we're doing that implementation and how, how can we work collaboratively because really the issues are really similar between what the county is working on and what each of our cities and towns is working on. Good. And then on the slide regarding units funded per year, do you have a sense even in the last year of what percentage of those are in unincorporated versus incorporated jurisdictions? Um, I think primarily that, yeah. in primarily in within cities and towns. Um, I, I think, think that that's changing. We have some significant developments that are coming up now, but primarily, but mostly within cities and towns. I think that information will be helpful as we talk about sort of the strategies and guidelines under the housing trust mm -hmm. fund. We'll have that for the in addition to yeah. matching by those jurisdictions. We'll have that for the subcommittee. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Lily. I think you said it. it's a lot to do. And I think we have the two groups that have a lot to do uh, coming this afternoon. So yes. thank you very thank much. Thank you. And um, we'll move now to our next group with a lot to do. Yeah, with that in mind, uh, one of the things is we wanted to have these presentations really uh, next to each other because of the obvious relationship that they have. And so I'm going to turn it over to Gary from Health and Human Services while we pull up the slides. And similar to the last discussion, your board has made significant investments, especially going forward, around um, homelessness and per, uh, permanent supportive housing. And three, just three highlights uh, would be uh, the, the three home key sites, where Gary will be sharing it's over $38 million worth of funding commitments from the county to, to bring those online and to operate them. So, um, you know. Similar to the discussion around affordable housing, we've really accelerated the investments in affordable housing. We're doing that in the area of uh, homelessness and permanent supportive housing as well. So I'm going to turn it over to Gary and look forward to your questions. Great. Thank you, uh, President Moulton Peters and members of the Board of Supervisors. Thank you so much for the opportunity to present and for your many years of support um, on the priority of homelessness here in Marin. 
Uh, I want to just take a moment to just thank a, a few group of folks. Uh, first, the HHS exec team and all of our division directors in HHS who work every day to ensure that we're providing the most integrated services and supports possible to our unhoused population. Um, I want to thank our community-based organizations, really, who are on the, especially the staff who are on the front lines, really working in the community, you know, directly with folks um, and with all of our unhoused neighbors, especially for their kindness and persistence um, in that work. Um, this takes time, uh, and uh, the staff in those organizations always are ready to meet the clients where they're at uh, in terms of whatever they might want to achieve. And finally, I want to especially thank my staff uh, in the Division of Whole Person Care um, and recognize just their incredible talents in helping to coordinate this work uh, and always look towards the future uh, of how to best position our efforts in Marin, um, along with all the staff in HHS and the other county departments that we work with um, who have an amazing collaborative approach uh, to addressing this work. Um, and you'd be surprised at some of the places, even libraries and park and recs and, you know, uh, amazing departments uh, that you wouldn't think would have a connection to homelessness but deeply do to our population and are always willing to be of assistance. So first, uh, to effectively address homelessness, it's critical to ensure access to affordable housing and prevent folks from losing that housing. And we're deeply grateful for the work that Lili um, and the Community Development Agency are doing um, and for the board's and continued investments in that area. Um, if an individual or family does lose their housing, it's our goal that that experience is as brief as possible. Rapid rehousing um, or providing one-time support to assist individuals in regaining housing is essential at this stage along with some of our outreach and shelter resources. And for those who experience multiple or longer episodes of homelessness, our system is prioritized through housing-based case management and permanent supportive housing to eliminate barriers on a pathway to housing. So similarly, our presentation will follow uh, the broad framework that Lili's did of kind of where have we been and where are we going and what are some of the emerging issues. So first, let's just talk briefly about where we've been. Um, since 2017, we've transformed our homeless system of care, effectively leveraged federal and state emergency funding during COVID. Uh, we've effectively utilized additional vouchers and <laughs> um, initiated some significant uh, city-county collaborations to move forward. So first, um, under your board's direction, our system was transformed in 2017 to focus on the model of Housing First. Housing First is a comprehensive system and set of strategies and supports that eliminate barriers to housing and assist clients with any additional services that they need based on their goals. And through our service alignment and expansion, we've accelerated pathways to housing for a large number of individuals and seen some tremendous successes that I'd like to share um, through our housing-focused shelter, rapid rehousing, expanded outreach, and of course, um, you all are most familiar with our housing-based case management and permanent supportive housing efforts. So since 2017, there are a total of 1,406 individuals that have been connected to housing in our system. Uh, this includes 
things like reunification with family, connections with friends, rapid rehousing support, um, as well as our permanent supportive housing efforts. And we've served 2,090 unique clients um, in our shelter system. And based on our housing-focused shelter model, we've seen over 700 of those individuals exit from that shelter directly to permanent supportive housing um, without having to return to the streets or uh, go to any interim supports. Uh, focusing on some of our key populations, which you often hear us talk a little bit more about, since 2017, 583 chronically homeless individuals. So that's, just to reaffirm that definition, that's someone that's been uh, homeless for more than a year um, and has some type of disabling condition. So 583 folks uh, housed in permanent supportive housing, that means continued ongoing supports um, with a 94% retention rate. Um, for those folks and being able to maintain their housing. Uh, we have housed 85 veterans, um, and uh, I wanna make note of this, especially um, our system has a count of 27 veterans remaining who are unhoused in Marin, which means that we are closing in on a functional end to veterans homelessness here in Marin, and we will only be one of a small um, handful of counties in California to be able to say that that has happened. So we're looking forward to uh, achieving that goal, hopefully when the new veterans housing comes online uh, in Novato under Homeward Bound. Uh, we've also housed 146 families, representing hundreds of individuals uh, in that time. So we've been exceptional at leveraging federal and state emergency funding during COVID. Um, we've served over 1,600 uh, individuals with those efforts. Uh, you all might recall Room yeah. Key uh, during 2020 and, and uh, 2021. We served over 316 folks who were most at risk um, for contracting COVID um, and were able to place them in those motel rooms during that time. This included a significant number of older adults and disabled folks. Um, and our Emergency Solutions Grant um, received through the state uh, at that time, served over 1,200 folks uh, across uh, shelter uh, outreach and rapid rehousing. So let's talk vouchers. Uh, we've effectively utilized uh, a significant number of additional vouchers that we've been able, we've been afforded um, here in Marin. Um, the first Type, just to use a little bit of technical HUD jargon, are called Section 8, 811 Mainstream. So these are vouchers that uh, jurisdictions have to compete for across the country. HUD randomly announces the opportunity for these vouchers. Um, they are never, they don't come on a predictable basis. There's never um, an assurance that there will ever be any more. Um, but we've been successful through five rounds of competitive funding since 2017 to secure 207 of these vouchers and issue them to clients. Um, these are for non-seniors, um, for individuals that have disabilities, uh, and uh, as I stated, is a competitive process. Um, they allow for support at about 90 to 110% of the HUD uh, fair market rent, which you heard Lily talking a little bit about here in Marin, which is exceptionally high. Um, the emergency housing voucher, or EHVs, so those serve um, individuals who are homeless um, or at risk of homelessness 
fleeing domestic violence, um, sexual assault, or human trafficking. And these, uh, because they came specially during the pandemic, allowed for support at 125% of HUD's um, fair market rent rates. So it was really helpful for getting folks in on an emergency basis. We've received uh, 117 of these and we uh, have leased up, which means the individual has received the Section 8 voucher and they are in a unit. Um, we are at 86% um, of those 117. This far exceeds California's average of 63% utilization of these emergency vouchers. And it's actually higher than 38 states across our country. Um, so Marin is doing exceptionally well in this category. And on this chart, I wanted to just demonstrate, um, you can see that by the different colors, the various types of vouchers um, utilized in our system and just our trending increase and uh, in being able to effectively utilize those um, over the past several years. Um, I wanted to just specifically point out uh, the Section 811 mainstream vouchers that I referred to on the previous slide. Those are here in orange. Um, so you can see how these have especially benefited our clients in the past four years and really accelerated the number of people that we've been able to house um, across the county. And finally, um, through city-county partnerships, we've been able to accelerate a pathway to housing uh, for uh, individuals who have high utilization of city services. So these would be folks who are frequently, uh, where cities are seeing response by fire and police on a frequent basis or other types of city services, um, and uh, folks who were in established encampments um, within various localities. And 102 individuals have been served by these joint efforts so far. So you've heard before about our high utilization of city services program. This was a $2 million collaboration with municipalities to reduce the local impact specifically, and 68 individuals were enrolled in that program, and clients were identified by the local municipalities specifically of who they would like to see us to work with. Um, the Encampment Resolution Fund grant opportunity round one that came out previously, uh, the county and Novato applied jointly to serve 17 individuals at Lee Gurner Park and the city of San Rafael applied directly to serve 17 individuals there locally. And um, your board had allocated 500K in um, direct encampment support um, during this time to help improve safety, security, uh, and other services at encampments in local municipalities. One of the really fueling the accelerated pathway to housing are the multiple grant sources that we've been successful in obtaining uh, to fund uh, housing-based case management. However, the expiration of a number of these one-time funding sources poses a significant ongoing risk for the county um, beginning in our next fiscal year. And so this one-time funding from the state has been helpful, but we need more of it. And we need to continue to advocate <laughs> um, with the state for continued ongoing support 
um, of addressing homelessness, not just one-time funding grants, um, but really counties take on all of the ongoing risk regarding case management and supportive services um, in keeping folks housed. And really, you know, these again are for folks who have experienced more than a year of homelessness, have a disabling condition, and really need that ongoing support during the course of their lifetime to continue to be successful in addressing their needs and retaining their housing. So where are we going? Uh, several key areas. First, um, there's been a significant expansion of new permanent supportive housing in the county. Um, we've been continuing to accelerate pathways to housing wherever we can, uh, continuing to expand those county and community partnerships, and really the cross-divisional and cross-departmental approaches to addressing um, issues within uh, HHS and the county overall. So I'll talk a little bit more deeply about those. So on this slide, you'll see the significant expansion in the number of permanent supportive housing units rising from the low 300s um, to 726 at the end of la uh, 2022. Overall, this is a net 46% increase in permanent supportive housing units uh, in the community. Just wanted to call your attention to the, the blue and the light blue bars on the chart. Those represent what we call scattered site units. These are apartments, um, and the darker blue is individuals, the lighter blue is families. Um, these are apartments integrated in the community um, with private landlords, and key to this success has been the Marin Housing Authority's Landlord Partnership Program, which provides an array of supports to landlords, including security deposit assistance, loss mitigation, and vacancy loss support. The dark um, and light orange sections, again, the dark orange representing single individuals, the light uh, families, um, represent what we call single site units or really entire buildings where individuals are. These include things like Project Home Key. Um, and although folks may think, because they've heard of Project Home Key so recently that we might be new to this work in the county, the county currently supports actually over 200 units in this category um, through partnerships with five um, community-based organizations across six different municipalities uh, in the county. So 60, there are 69 new uh, units um, in single sites, um, or those, again, full buildings, are coming on board this year and next, including 43 units at 1251 South Elysio this fall um, and 10 units at Vivalon in San Rafael, specifically for older adults, and 16 units at 3301 Kerner in San Rafael will come on board at the end of 2024 and early 2025. Um, the total county commitment to these new single sites, um, as uh, the county administrator mentioned, has been a total of 38 million, 10 million in one-time funding uh, around capital support and 28 million in ongoing funding support for the operation of these sites. And this is really based on requirements that come from Home Key, No Place Like Home, and other grant sources that say, you know, when you build these sites, you need to commit to 15 to 20 years of operation support up front. 
um, and identify those funding sources. So accelerating pathways to housing. Um, collaboration with our many partners has been critical to our su success thus far, um, including the Marin Housing Authority, the Richardson Bay Regional Authority, and our cities and towns. We need to continue these collaborations in order to make progress. I wanted to especially point out um, a new MHA county collaboration um, funded through an allocation that your board recently made um, with remaining federal um, emergency rental uh, assistance program support funding. This is gonna provide rental support for up to one year for 10 individuals who are waiting on a Section 8 voucher when we are in shortfall here in Marin, but we know that others may be coming um, within six months or a year. Um, and it'll also fund an additional staff person at the Housing Authority to really accelerate the documentation process for Section 8 for our unhoused clients and move that process a little faster. Um, your board uh, and uh, the RBRA board heard recently, um, and the MHA board heard recently about a collaboration between our three entities. Um, the Richardson Bay Regional Authority will be providing a similar type of rental support for up to 17 individuals awaiting a Section 8 voucher, and that support is for up to three years to assist individuals in transitioning off the water. Um, and uh, HHS will be working uh, in partnership with that program to provide the needed housing-based case management support um, for individuals uh, in that program. And then finally, um, the county has received 500K in direct support um, through, from Senator McGuire uh, to prioritize uh, inter immediate interventions at Binford Road. Uh, and the county has also matched that with a 1.0 um, full-time equivalent uh, term limited uh, staff person who's going to be our lead in collaborating all of the county departments, community-based organizations, um, grants, and everything that are working to further um, folks getting into housing from Binford. And finally, we need to continue to focus on expanding our county community partnerships. Um, again, through that same funding through Senator McGuire, uh, we received 1.5 million um, that your board has matched with 1.5 million locally um, to be split between the communities of Novato, San Rafael, and Sausalito to prospectively address the items that you see here, um, purchasing or rehabilitating housing, um, operations associated with emergency encampments or needed emergency housing for individuals, direct assistance programs or services for unhoused residents, and costs related to local staffing um, or even helping in severe weather emergency shelter uh, events locally if needed. And finally, uh, the county has submitted uh, two applications recently, um, one uh, for uh, Binford, focused on Binford Road under the second round of uh, encampment resolution funding. And uh, I wanted to note here that if we receive those funds, this will immediately put 40 individuals on a pathway to permanent supportive housing and provide interim housing support for an additional 37 individuals. Um, significantly reducing the number of folks um, residing at Binford. 
we were also fortunate to apply in collaboration with Novato um, for funds to address the marsh, um, as we did uh, in the previous round with the Lee Gurner encampment. And if received, this will immediately put 20 individuals on a pathway to permanent supportive housing and provide uh, 10 additional individuals interim housing support as they stabilize in other settings. And then really developing, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about how some of our cross-divisional and departmental approaches finally um, within HHS and the county are moving us forward in some significant ways. Uh, I would be remiss not to mention Cal-AIM, <laughs> uh, the perennial big fish in the pond um, as we move forward. And again, really Cal-AIM is the state's, uh, just to remind uh, all of us, is the state's effort to reform Medi-Cal. And really this is to help develop a new type of system of care that connects healthcare and housing, specifically around our unhoused individuals, and really helps to ensure coordination of delivery systems uh, for individuals in a much more meaningful way. Really, a lot of the model that we learned from our whole person care innovation grant, um, as others did across the county. So continuing that type of approach. Um, but we know that it's impossible to keep people healthy without addressing their housing needs. And it's nice to see Cal-AIM moving in some of those directions. Um, first is what's called uh, enhanced case management. That's a program um, within our behavioral health and recovery services division that we work collaboratively with them on. This is really to improve uh, supports for people with complex needs and who are facing difficult life and health circumstances. It's really about breaking down the traditional walls of healthcare and extend, extending beyond hospitals and healthcare settings into communities. And this is really the, the glue that's gonna help uh, bring folks' needs together um, who have the highest and most complex needs in the system. Uh, additionally, our Division of Whole Person Care has taken on what's called community supports. These are new services provided by the Medi-Cal managed care plans as really cost-effective alternatives to medical services and settings. Like, these are not medical services. Um, the specific services that, service that we're providing is called tenancy sustaining services. So again, helping folks to retain their housing once they've been in it, um, especially who have complex medical and other needs. Um, these are optional services. Um, and it's not a benefit. Um, under Medi-Cal, Partnership Health Plan has elected to offer these services and we're grateful to be in partnership with them around this. And I mention these both because by doing these two programs under um, Cal-AIM, it put us in a position to leverage an additional 7.1 million in the Healthy Housing Incentive Program. And that's gonna fund additional rapid rehousing, outreach, and permanent supportive housing for our residents. And this is really, the intention of these funds are really to help bring Medi-Cal managed care plans into partnership with the homelessness system of care um, in counties. So, and we earn these dollars by participating in those efforts, and so we need to work together um, with partnership uh, to continue to be eligible for these, but we're grateful for this first step. Um, second, uh, I wanted to just mention briefly, the uh, county has supported, again, a 1.0 FTE, um, term-limited uh, support service worker who's going to help 
look at, look across all of our HHS divisions and ensure that all of the services and entitlements that we provide or have access to within Health and Human Services are provided to unhoused individuals who need them. Uh, and finally, uh, you heard a little bit about this in the workshop yesterday, um, but the Continuous Improvement Project for Health and Human Services is gonna be the race equity budgeting tool, um, and that will be focused within our homelessness work. Uh, and the basic question that we're looking to answer is how do we assure that what we spend is in service to reducing racial disparities in the homelessness work. And then finally, um, homelessness prevention. We've had collaborations with some new uh, community-based organization partners uh, and some key uh, social service initiatives. You, your board may recall HomeSafe, which is a program for individuals who are in APS uh, under our aging division. And the focus of that work is to help assure that individuals who may be experiencing abuse and neglect um, don't lose their housing because of that uh, abuse and neglect. And our aging division has been very successful in the implementation of that work to date. Um, we'll be looking at creating what we call a prevention framework um, in Marin. Uh, again, it's difficult, you know, just to mention, because you hear ho um, homelessness prevention come up a lot in the near future. It's difficult to determine who needs prevention um, for homelessness. For example, you know, who might not be able to resolve their homelessness themselves. Um, currently, in the literature and in the science, the only factor that predicts future homelessness is prior experience of homelessness. Um, but um, our prevention framework is really gonna delve into and involve looking at best practices and successful prevention programs around the state and country to create an overall approach to prevention in Marin. And you'll hear a lot upcoming from our federal interagency council on homelessness partners as whether, and our Cal interagency council on homelessness partners who are all gonna start looking at prevention and we hope provide some funding in that arena as well as they move forward. And finally, um, we'll be doing a refresh of our homelessness strategic plan uh, this year, and we call it a refresh because you know your board really set the direction in 2017 around a housing first approach and brought so many folks together. But over the years, we've been able to identify some key service gaps and other things that can be tightened up in that system that would really help us to achieve uh, true collective impact around the issue, and we wanna focus on tightening those up. Um, and finally, just the emerging issues and where we're going. So there's uncertainty regarding the future of new voucher availability. Um, right now, we depend on um, referring to the section, our, our folks to the Section 8 wait list, and the availability of a Section 8 voucher in Marin depends on turnover at this point. So really, someone has to exit using a Section 8 voucher um, in our county before there's availability for anyone, um, unhoused individuals or others, to be able to access that support. As I mentioned earlier, the Section 811 mainstream competitive vouchers, um, new awards require full utilization of all previous awards, which we're doing well at, um, but the availability of any future awards is unknown. Uh, and finally, uh, the emergency housing vouchers, or EHVs, are no longer being issued, um, and a quirk 
to that particular funding because it was pandemic related is that if there happens to be turnover of that particular type of voucher because someone reunites with a family or is able to stabilize in another way that doesn't require the Section 8 voucher, we can't reassign those to someone else like we can with other vouchers in our system. So that would be a significant loss um, because of the way they're currently structured. Uh, there's a lack of ongoing funding and coordination at the state and federal level when it comes to homelessness. Uh, and really, to, to really move forward with this issue, all levels of government need to be involved in the response to homelessness. And it takes a multidisciplinary response to really meet unhoused individuals' needs. Um, it calls upon the best of all of us uh, to be able to make a difference. Uh, more focus is needed on prevention. Uh, we always want to reduce the number of individuals entering homelessness and increase the number of individuals exiting homelessness. Um, in 2022, we had a net reduction of about 168 individuals um, in the county. So that means that between individuals exiting homelessness and individuals entering homelessness in 2022, we only saw a net reduction of 168. So we would like to really accelerate that um, reduction. Finally, um, the need for intensive supports for individuals with complex needs. These include skilled nursing sites, dementia care, board and care, um, but there are folks with very, especially older adults with very complex needs and often limited to no availability in these types of settings to place folks in. Um, and finally, um, you know, we have seen an increase in older adults unable to retain housing and meet basic needs, and we always want to ensure to continue to prioritize um, older, adults, older adults as a population as we move forward. And finally, I would be remiss if I just didn't mention two things that happened rec very recently. Um, one, the California um, State Association of Counties, or CSAC, recently released uh, a sentinel plan called At Home. And the plan is intended to address the fact that despite significant investments and partnerships between state um, and local governments, the response to helping those who are unhoused is fragmented um, and lacks clear lines of responsibility, accountability, and transparency, in their words. Um, so this um, approach is actually summarized at home as actually an acronym. I just wanted to briefly uh, mention what each one stands for. The first is accountability, um, and I think the most important. Um, here, no one level of government is solely responsible for the homelessness crisis. So we need to develop a comprehensive and coordinated plan that includes every level of government in our state. And CSAC has identified this as the linchpin, the most crucial element of their plan. And this means cities working to site and support shelters, permanent supportive housing, encampment cleanup and management, and counties doing the same in unincorporated areas and partnering with our cities to effectively leverage resources and solutions. Uh, the T's for transparency really focuses on that data systems and current data sharing does not support an integrated case management approach to helping those who are unhoused. Sometimes we are prohibited from sometimes even talking to some of our peer agencies or organizations um, around this issue. Uh, we need to break down those barriers. Uh, the H is for housing and really about acquiring, building, and operating housing across the full continuum. The O is for outreach um, and really a special focus 
on workforce development to address the significant shortage of community-based organization and HHS government workers to manage the programs and services to assist this population. And finally, the M is for mitigation, which is strengthening the net, the safety net of health and human service programs to prevent individuals from becoming homeless. Oops, and the E, um, economic opportunity. So this is really for specialized education and career programs and services to support economic opportunity and long-term self-sufficiency for um, unhoused individuals. So I will take your questions. Thank you. Thank you, Gary. I'm going to look at my colleagues for questions. Mary, look like you're ready to lead off. Good. <laughs> I can do that. Um, so thank you so much for the presentation, all the work, and just highlighting the collaboration of how many ropes of funding, people, intergovernmental agencies. Um, it's not, it's so complex and that there's not one homeless solution, I think is really illustrated in this work. Um, so if slide four is the one that talks about since 2017, how many um, folks have been connected to housing and how many unique clients have been served. And I'm hoping you can provide context there of, um, you know, is it a relation to the point in time count, like, or how many over over the year? I'm just not sure how to put 1,400 looks like a big number, but I don't know what the comparison is. Thank you for that question. I think we'll need to break down that data further to uh, exactly answer what you're asking uh, by year. But I think, you know, currently our point in time count that was most recently done at the beginning of this year shows, you know, 1,121 uh, individuals uh, unhoused in Marin in total. Um, that is... Uh, an increase from the previous point in time count, but an overall reduction um, from the past several years, um, although minor. Uh, again, the factor here is that folks enter homelessness each year as they also exit um, homelessness each year. And so I would need to follow up to get some more year-by-year -year breakdown numbers to show some of that progress and challenge. And I understand that you know people don't operate on a... <laughs> calendar or fiscal year so if there's another way to organ you know to just put that into context of are we you know are we hitting 50 percent are we hitting you know 75 percent or are we hitting two percent just to add some context I'd appreciate that um, regarding the um, HUD so what does it mean when it's 110% or 125% of HUD fair market rent that's provided by some of these voucher sources? So that says that, you know, for the, the average rent um, in the county that the voucher can um, exceed, uh, so house folks in units that may exceed that average cost uh, at that rate. So the market that level. incentivizes landlords to. Yeah, and uh, I think good point that it you know really is about incentivizing um, landlords to be able to uh, take on Section Eight individuals, and uh, you know recognizes I think the high market rate for our for rent here in Marin. 
And the um, graph about the voucher utilization since 2017, um, slide eight. I know that, so 2017 we're utilizing 10 vouchers and now we're utilizing 110. Is that all as a result of the landlord partnership program? Is that a result of applying for additional vouchers um, or both? <laughs> yeah, it's really both. Uh, it's a combination of our um, success uh, in partnership with the Housing Authority of, of, of obtaining additional vouchers, but I think also um, a combination of landlords being willing to uh, take these vouchers and the supports through the Landlord Partnership Program as well as some of the new um, single-site housing that we've been able to bring online um, over the past several years. That have those project-based vouchers in them. Okay. And then this... Um, ominous slide about the, you know, lack of funding come fiscal year 26. Um, I, I mean, one is that that all of the funding streams are ready to, will have a sunset deadline or that have a sunset provision or we just do anticipate any future funding. Um, how real is zero? It's a great question. So there are a number of different types of grants um, represented in that chart, some that are spe specific to supports that were received due to pandemic funding, um, our, our high utilizer case management program where the county matches support with the cities is represented on that slide. Um, there are other uh, grant sources like HAP, which your board is familiar with, um, that have been renewed um, for a number of cycles. So really it's a mixed bag um, on that slide, but I think what the essential picture is that that slide tells is that we need to ensure that there's not a gap in the kinds of housing-based case management support that individuals are receiving to help accelerate that pathway to housing or to help retain them uh, in housing. We hope uh, you know additional funds come and we look forward to additional announcements, hopefully from the state and feds, but it's never a guarantee. What we've seen so far is the majority of this funding is one time. And so I also, yeah, go ahead. I just, if you wanted me to expand on that a little bit, um, because um, this is something that we kind of highlighted at the board last year, um, because it, you know we started off in, in some cases using whole person care for for su supportive services for homeless, and that went away. And then most recently, that the home key is funded for a couple years, and then that goes away. The partnership with the cities is for five years, and then that goes away. And so we talked about you know when we do our projections, the county's kind of the funder of last resort, and so. We are going to have to spend, last year you may recall, we set aside $1.5 million ongoing to provide supportive services for homeless individuals to maintain where we are. And then also going forward, we wanted to have a policy when there is a, a voucher that we would leverage that. So it is a um, increasing commitment on the part of the county. And I think it's one of the things that... Um, CSAC is talking to to uh, the state about is that it's it's really difficult because much of the state money was one time for two to three years 
and then after that, the counties are the ones absorbing that ongoing cost. So we are planning for that so we don't lose um, you know, the gains we've made over the past several years, but it's definitely a, a big issue going forward. Yeah, and just another way to picture that for folks is, you know, there are two types of situations that we found ourselves in in the past. One where we, there, we've had housing-based case management support, but not enough vouchers to, to house people right away. We've also had the reverse be true, where there have been vouchers, but not enough housing-based case management support to advance people on the pathway to that voucher. I think it's the latter that we're trying to prevent um, with this type of ongoing focus and support. We don't want there to ever be vouchers available in the system where we don't have the housing-based case management support to advance people to that step in the process. Um, it's, it's okay but not ideal to have housing-based case management but be in a shortfall of vouchers temporarily um, because those case managers can work with <laughs> clients on other goals um, and other types of uh, priorities that, that clients so it's always about preventing the latter. And so just, you know, I was kind of going back to our, the overview yesterday of the, like, discretionary versus mandatory spending. And it sounds like the county is the funder of last resort for these case management. I assume that's mandatory or is that discretionary? No. I mean, it, it's a discretionary choice your board's making um, to make that investment. Um, and, you know, again, what we talked about last year, it's still a, a more cost-effective investment to provide uh, supportive services and have the federal government paying for the Section 8 voucher. And so that's why, you know, it's a very good opportunity for us uh, to do that because it's much more costly to do the, the site-specific um, you know, building. So the uh, so we we want to be able to leverage that, um, but it's it's all a discretionary choice on the part of your your board, uh, and so that's what I was saying is we've had these priorities really inform your board's investments over the last several years, and you know both both presentations have shown an upward trend, and those are you know reflective of us investing more in both uh, the area of affordable housing as well as permanent supportive housing. But that is not mandated. Mary, can I ask a follow-up to yeah. that? So, Matthew, I'm looking at the budget workbook, page 19, which has the current year budget summaries. And I'm looking at health and human services. And it, um, I'm so when we're talking about that discretionary general fund dollars that are going towards the supportive side, it's I'm guessing it's reflected partly in some of the this net county costs used to fund balance for behavioral health and recovery services, maybe whole person care. Can you, because we're doing more than 1.5 million a year. Yeah, so uh, it's it, right now this is in whole person care, and so the net county cost $5.8 million is the net county cost within the whole person care division. And as you mentioned, there's also related investments around mental health to support those you know clients as well. But the, the part that's showing supportive services for permanent supportive housing would be in our whole person care division, and which currently has a $5.8 million ongoing subsidy. Okay. Right. Thank you. Just a couple more. Um, so I really appreciate you highlighting the CSAC work because I think it is, you know, we... I don't think it's a surprise, but we are in this sort of push and pull with our jurisdictions on how we 
resolve and, you know, work together and it's, it's an ongoing source of consternation, I think, for both sides. So looking at how this funding is directed or providing some benchmarks, I think, could be really important. And then I just want to, um, you know, appreciate the, on the emerging issues this, this idea of complex needs and services, and in particular your discussion of folks with dementia or folks needing um, board and care and... Um, how sort of crucial uh, I see that personally as a um, societal group that we need to take care of and um, the notion that they could be in an encampment or in the car or on the streets is um, unacceptable. Can you speak to what my my assumption and correct I hope I'm wrong but my assumption is we don't have congregate settings for folks who need dementia or memory care services so what does that look like if somebody do we have any relationship with um, assisted living or or memory care facilities or um, skilled nursing facilities or anything like that that we can partner with for some of these rooms I know it's astronomically expensive anyone so uh, I think we're dealing with a, a dual factor in that situation one you know is really the lack of availability of units in those types of settings and second is sometimes um, the challenge in being able to get folks accepted who have a current uh, experience of uh, homelessness so and uh, you know as you mentioned the high cost I think we need many more relationships with these types of facilities, both within our county and outside of our county, to be able to continue to find the, and match the right supports for individuals in these circumstances. Um, most often, you know, when our case managers and others are calling to try to get folks placed, oftentimes out of county, um, the answer, you know, from many, many facilities continues to be no you know, until there's that final yes somewhere of, of getting folks in, but it shouldn't be that difficult um, for folks who have uh, these complex needs. Do we have any examples of that being successful within Marin? Uh, I can follow up with you on some of that. I think chatting with our team internally as well as our aging division, we can probably, I can bring a few of those back. I guess, yeah, it'd be good to see if there's any success stories that we could, or is there, you know, outreach with operators? I don't know. Let's come together and think creatively about what opportunities there may be to, and do we have any idea of how many folks may currently be in that category of, you know, entering or in dementia that are unhoused? Yeah, I can get you data on that as well. Thank you. Gary, thank you for the presentation. It was very thorough. Um, I'm sitting here thinking that there's probably only about 200 of us hearing this today, and that's really a shame that only 200 are able to hear this presentation and hear this report and hear about the good work we've been doing. And, and so my questions really first are, I want to thank you for that because of that and I, I'm hopefully we can use this clip when we get questions about what are you doing about homelessness for our residents and our, our constituents who ask us um, 
You didn't mention, and I thought an issue was a shortage of housing units. And I, I didn't quite hear that in your presentation. I might have missed that. So how, what kind of a role, how important is that role, just the available units to place people in? And is that an ongoing struggle? So how many, uh, sorry, so uh, just to make sure the I understand, the, the number of units that are available at any given moment yeah. once someone actually has that Section 8 voucher. Um, it, it can be tough uh, depending uh, on the time of year, you know, different circumstances. Um, Fortunately, we've seen an acceleration since the pandemic, um, both due to the availability of vouchers and thankfully the availability of some units in the county. Um, we've really accelerated by over, I think, 56% the number of folks that we house um, monthly uh, since the pandemic, but um, that will always be an issue. Um, our system will always be a funnel um, at that point where the availability of units um, both either at a very low income rate for folks that don't have a Section 8, um, but just a very small income, um, or even those market rate units that can be supported by the Section 8, and then, then the availability of potentially vouchers and, and beyond that. So that will always be the challenging point in our system is that availability of units. And we encourage, you know, especially if there are landlords out there listening, you know, for folks to join the Landlord Partnership Program at the Marin Housing Authority. It supports more than just unhoused individuals, um, although they are one of the priorities, uh, but an essential way um, to help assure that those units are available when needed. Great. Then on slide 14, I thank Senator McGuire for the additional funding. This was the first time I learned about it being available for some West Marin prevention. And I wondered if you could just talk about what that might look like. Uh, yeah, so that's the 500K um, indirect funding to the county for support. So uh, when we, uh, the cities and the county collaboratively created an ask um, around that, um, as well as uh, the Richardson Bay Regional Authority at the same time when the state had surplus funding um, to be able to look at in the prior fiscal year. Uh, and so uh, Senator McGuire was a strong advocate uh, in that process for our county. And he was able to look at uh, some supports of about approximately $3 million that went to the Richardson Bay Regional Authority um, and the uh, $2 million in supports uh, that went to us and the cities to be able to be addressing the unhoused work. Um, we knew that uh, there were things on our plate at that time, like Binford, um, things in West Marin, other places in the unincorporated area um, that we wanted to begin accelerating pathways on. So that was part of the approach of that funding. And if there are other you know, ideas and thoughts um, that your board has around some of those resources, you know, we would love to talk with you about that. And that's 500,000. Yeah, of the 500,000, yep. All right, thank you. And then can you talk a little bit more about the idea that you might do a refresh and what you're thinking about there? Um, the reason I ask is I think there's a point where the current program either may run out of housing units, run out of vouchers, or maybe even run out of people that that sort of housing fits. And just wondering what you're thinking about briefly on the refresh. 
Yeah, again, just to reiterate, you know, the this is not a traditional, this wouldn't be a traditional, like, start from scratch, a strategic planning process um, to, like, figure out an, an, a new way to address things. I think your board was very clear uh, back in 2017 about the housing first approach and, and really what that means, and we've seen incredible success utilizing that approach. I think um, just going back to a little of what I explained before, that, you know, our, we've really you know, in the county, in collaboration with our cities and our community-based organizations, has created a tight network of services and supports uh, to help individuals. But the one-time funding, uncertainty of future funding, continued need for workforce development, turnover of folks, um, both at the county and in community-based organizations, challenges any coordinated and collaborated network. Um, and so the intention w with this process is really to see where are those critical gaps or holes in the system where folks aren't currently getting served, how can we do it better, going back to Supervisor Sackett's comments, some of the complex needs folks, how are we leveraging CalAIM, really what's on the horizon, how is prevention factoring in. It's really the opportunity for us to take that existing great network of folks and really pull it together um, in a tighter way to achieve really a deeper uh, collective impact. So it's really gonna be about identifying those gaps um, of where folks might not be getting what they need and how those can be filled and who in the network can be positioned to do that. Great, and then just a couple brief comments if I may. Looking at slide 10, I understand the ongoing cost uh, concerns but I, I would wish that we would always consider the savings that we're experiencing from not having 580 people homeless and on the street and in the emergency rooms. So at some point, even like 2023, I'd like to see the, what was it, the projected cost savings that we had by having these people housed because I think from a budgetary perspective, we always have to look at what the alternative would have been. And I think it's much more expensive if they were on the street. So. I don't, I don't want to lose sight of that when we're talking about budgets. And then just lastly, you know, we talk about 580 people that have been housed, and, um, you know, each one of those are individuals that are in a very unique situation for them. Some of them have been in house for years and suddenly have a roof over their head. They're suddenly becoming healthier, um, and, and it's amazing those individual stories, and, and hopefully some of those stories can be told at some point because I'm familiar with one at Casa Buena, and it's totally amazing the transition in that person's life. A senior who literally lived outdoors for the last 15 years, was very unhealthy, and now it's turned his life around by being at Casa Buena. So I think it's important to keep that perspective too. So thank you. All right. Uh, thank you, Gary. Uh, just a, a couple, one, uh, Specific question, maybe just a, an overarching question. Um, for great work. I mean, the, the number of individuals that we've been able to house is, is really, really phenomenal. And I do echo the thoughts. I do wish more people were able, able to hear that. Um, there's also at the same time this disconnect of we've been able to house all of these individuals, but we're also still seeing visible encampments in our communities. So help, help paint a picture. Who are the individuals that, that we are able to house? Uh, you know, w w what what areas of our community are they coming from? Maybe just, just add a little more detail around that because I know that's a, a common question that pops up uh, pretty pretty common, pretty frequently. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, so I think first I would just echo um, Supervisor Rodoni's comments that, you know, for folks that we've housed are in a variety of types of circumstances. Um, there is no typical client um, in our system. Folks come with a variety of needs and a variety of uh, moments uh, in their life, as are folks who are still um, unhoused, you know, in our community. Uh, in terms of you know geographic distribution, I mean we've housed individuals from across our county, um, from you know every encampment that there's been, um, from places you wouldn't even see where folks are, um, to uh, and you know we'll continue to do that. Um, you know the main process that we utilize that folks are familiar with uh, is called coordinated entry as we engage with folks so folks are assessed by vulnerability um, and really that system is um, works in a way that prioritizes the most vulnerable uh, individuals uh, first for housing and there are a lot of vulnerable individuals um, in our county so um, you know I think what what I can do is do some more digging into that too and looking at some of the geographic distribution across the county and some of the, the circumstances. But as we know, you know, here in California, especially in the Bay Area, you know, the last thing I would say is homelessness is a, is a persistent issue. And unfortunately, we have, you know, far too many folks who are still entering homelessness on a regular basis, um, as well as the large number of folks that we continue to exit from homelessness. And I think until we can see a better, uh, until we can increase significantly our exits and reduce significantly our um, entrances into homelessness, um, we will unfortunately continue to see, you know, folks on the street. Yeah, and even with our efforts to attempt to house the, the most vulnerable or the chronically homeless, um, individuals still need to be somewhat willing to submit to the, the vulnerability assessment or, or take the housing. And we do still have quite a, folks, a few folks that are just service resistant, which takes, it's, it's a longer ramp that we, we need to keep, keep working through. Maybe speak to that a little bit. Yeah, you know, uh, one of the hallmarks, I think, of our housing-based case management, our outreach system, our housing-focused shelter, um, folks is really the persistence of engagement with our clients and that individuals are ready for different types of services and supports at different times in their life and we do not you know are not in a position to force people to to take any of those supports or services um, folks need to be ready um, to move on that pathway and I think that's why it's so important that we have a housing first model so that if someone is not ready to address other issues in their life that they can still move towards that housing pathway at a minimum um, and get into a place uh, that's safe and and secure and best for their well-being um, I would also just want to make sure to point out kind of the dual statistics. We hear the 583 chronically homeless individuals housed and how they're prioritized in our system. But on the earlier slide, I mean, we've housed 1,406 folks over the last five years. So I just want to make sure to communicate, especially to the public, that our focus is not just on folks who are the most vulnerable, that we help folks wherever they are on their housing pathway um, to the extent of the services and resources that we have. That's great, I, I appreciate that. Um, and then just a couple uh, specifics on the uh, emergency housing vouchers. 
Um, I thought you mentioned about, did I hear about 86 per, 86% of them are utilized? So that means there are still some available that have not been assigned to an individual? Uh, no, so that means 86% leased. That's the metric that HUD uses. So okay. individuals who have signed a lease and are actually in a unit, um, they, they look at that particular metric, metric of success. Um, we have uh, the remaining um, vouchers are in the, have either been assigned to individuals and they are searching for units currently, or folks have been matched with that resource and are just in the process of doing that paperwork. So we are all, basically at 100% utilization of both okay. of those types. Yeah. Um, and then uh, next, um, I appreciate the updates on, on Binford Road and also the collaboration with municipalities around the encampment resolution fund. Uh, what is the timing on that? And when would we know if we are successful uh, with that grant? Uh, the encampment resolution fund round two uh, was just submitted uh, in late February and the awards this time are on a rolling basis uh, with the state. So they evaluate them as they receive them. So we made sure we were in the, the, the earliest date of submission um, for those. So we hope um, within 90 to uh, you know, 100 days at the most that we hear back um, of what next steps might be. And, and is it two different grants, one for Binford and then one that kind of collaborates with the, the cities and towns, or is it all one funding request? So we, uh, we partnered on, uh, we submitted two applications from the county. Um, the first was uh, specifically for Binford, since that's in the unincorporated area, that was our solo application. And then we partnered with Novato, um, as we did with the Lee Gurner one, to focus on the marsh. On the marsh, great. Um, and then finally, um, you mentioned the one full-time uh, employee position for Binford. When is that going to start? ASAP. Um, <laughs> I'm finalizing uh, all of the, the job announcements and postings with our HR department uh, right now. So uh, especially if there are interested folks in the public listening, uh, look for that uh, on our county website in the next few weeks. I appreciate you speaking both to Benford and also to the Marsh because I, I see some folks that will probably speak to that as well. Thank you. All right, Gary, thank you so much and the whole team and the army of people out there uh, doing this work. I, um, there's a lot of numbers. Matthew was, you know, having a party over there, but um, I just want to dive down into a couple of them, a few of them. So um, the 1,406 total connected to housing, do you just want to, can you talk about that? I mean, you've already spoken about it in different ways, but what exactly does that mean and how important is it? Uh, how, what, what exactly does it mean? How is it funded? So if rapid rehousing is a part of that, of, of that function, and um, how well funded are the tools that you use to connect people to housing included in that universe of 1400? Because it's reading to me like it's really important towards preventing chronic homelessness. Absolutely. So within the 1406 um, is our 583 um, who are chronically homeless, who were supported through permanent supportive housing and a Section 8 voucher specifically. So that's one type of housing support. The remaining, um, we see a significant number of folks uh, rehoused through rapid rehousing. So those are usually small one-time supports to help folks regain stability. It can be helping uh, folks with a security deposit, first and last month's rent, 
um, things like that, um, that help get them like out of a hole that they may be in, uh, that cause them to lose their housing in the first place, and would prevent you know, a successful application with a landlord moving forward. Uh, and uh, several of our community-based organizations, I want to call out specifically St. Vincent's um, and Ritter Center, who do exceptional work um, around rapid rehousing uh, and have, uh, especially during the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic. But those supports are essential for assuring that someone's experience of housing is brief. Um, other types of support are outreach workers uh, and other uh, county staff work with folks sometimes to do family reunification. Um, you know, one of our staff, I think this quote has been lost to mythology at this point, but it was a real person in Marin that said it at one point. But, you know, a lot of times we think that folks become homeless because they run out of financial resources. But a lot of times, you know, what this person said is it's, it's also when you run out of relationships, um, that you often find yourself homeless, where there's not that friend or family member that can help you in an interim situation until you stabilize yourself or relationships with family members may be broken. And we've seen clients, uh, you know, outreach workers and case managers work bend over backwards um, to help reunify families, um, rebuild family relationships, and help clients uh, reunify with families both inside and outside of California. So that, that number really represents a mix of all of the types of supports that we try to provide uh, to individuals. Sometimes it can be just helping someone navigate a pathway, providing other types of social service supports um, that help them get back into housing as well. So really a broad array um, of things. But again, it's part of a fragmented patchwork system you know, that is funded by multiple sources, and um, we need to, you know, where our folks do a tremendous uh, uh, amount of work to, to bring together for that success. Yeah, and I, I wanted to highlight that because, the, you know, if you can get someone early, that, that's part of the whole housing first philosophy is, you know, you're not you're not you're gonna you're gonna focus on those who have been chronically homeless the folks who are hardest to serve and get connected to housing and get co and because those those are the folks who historically maybe weren't folks we didn't spend enough time on and so that housing first connection really and really focusing on those chronically homeless was so important but the prevention piece is as important and this number really highlights um that that 1400 um I wanted to ask about the, I'm calling it, let's see, page 10, the sort of you're calling it pathways to housing, which is, no, page 14, I'm sorry. Um, the rental support, these, these couple different variations on rental support for individuals who are waiting for a Section 8 voucher. And, um, and I'm just, one curious is, is what does that rental support look like in terms of where those folks are, are what, temporary shelter they're finding or temporary housing and um it, it seems to me that it's it's a new it, it's sort of an innovation in recent years and i'm just could you talk a little bit more about that and and how you see it potentially being baked into our strategic planning so the optimal circumstance that an, a client might be in to take advantage of this type of program, and it echoes, I think, Supervisor Rodoni's comments as well, that you know, it, this is really for someone where they are 
finalizing their steps either in applying for a Section 8 voucher or maybe where we're currently in shortfall and don't have vouchers available immediately, but know that there may be some more coming in six months or a year. Um, so what a client would do in this situation is this kind of direct funding support would be if a unit was available in the community. So let's say there's an apartment out there and there's a willing landlord who says, okay, I know there's this interim support the client's gonna be getting when they're on their pathway to their Section 8 voucher. We can access the unit now so we don't lose it um, in that interim while we're waiting for a Section 8 voucher. So this direct support would fund that short time period um, until the client um, becomes uh, finalizes their application, becomes eligible, and then receives uh, their Section 8 voucher. I think there's a, I think that, I'm, I think it's really um, innovative. It seems sort of like a duh moment, but um, really innovative, and um, I think it deserves its own name, this kind of, mm. yeah, and anyway, you've called it a couple different things in here. Um, and, and so here's the next question. Um, and this all kind of goes towards the refresh of the strategic plan. Um, we focused a lot in the development of permanent supportive housing units, beds, in, in different settings. Not every client has the same level of need in terms of support. Um, and I guess what I'm thinking about is to what degree are we able to plan forward in terms of sort of some targets for a goal of how many permanent supportive housing beds in single site versus sort of different staggered levels of care for budgeting purposes? Because, um, you know, there's, there's only going to be so much funding ultimately. And I'm also thinking about this in terms of an overall population that you would expect a certain number of people to need certain different things, and I would include Supervisor Sackett's comment about sort of this aging population and or the population in need of um, real, real, actually uh, more like board and care, but I hate that terminology um, for dementia aging services. So planning-wise, can, can we get that deep and sort of specific and as opposed to just adding on as fast as we can, have some targets in mind that are realistically informed based on our population. So uh, thank you. And the, these uh, questions I think would be great to follow up uh, with your board uh, committee on uh, homelessness before we launched the strategic planning process to look at some of those frames. Our team internally has spent the last year really digging into our data as much as possible to see what projections might look like and we'd be glad to bring some of that information to your subcommittee to help inform maybe how we phrase some of those questions strategically moving forward. Yeah, I didn't expect you to answer right there. But, <laughs> uh, and then also I want to throw into that, I assume we're, you're thinking about uh, potential care clients, um, folks coming through the care system when that, once that gets on board. Um, anyway, I think that's it. There's a, there's a lot here to digest. I think I agree with my colleagues. I think we're really doing quite a good job. Um, a lot of innovative things have been happening in recent years, and including some of these uh, city-county collaborations. 
um, in the end, I, I hope that as we do that strategic planning, we are involving the cities and we really start to get a good handle and agreement around lanes that are filled and roles we each play and how we, we play them. And then also the funding commitments. Um, we are making these very long-term funding commitments uh, as a county and I'd like that to be more appreciated, frankly. Okay, I'm going to try and be brief, but Gary, I also want to appreciate the complexity of what you presented here today, all the moving parts, the ways that you try and integrate them, you and your whole team. And, and uh, the last example that Supervisor Rice, uh, you know, if we don't have a voucher ready to go, let's plug that hole with some local, I mean, it's just amazing all of the pieces that you put into place to try and fill the, the, the needs that we have. So I want to compliment you, all of you, truly for that. And I've been a part of it in our BRA, working uh, with the senator's money, the county's money, uh, limited resources and places to put people. And it really is a, a beautiful thing when you've got the vouchers and the places to put people and the supportive services all mm -hmm. in one place in one time. That, that, <laughs> that's the magic moment. But it's hard won to get that all lined up. Uh, but I, I want to encourage us to continue to innovate. I think it's great that CSAC has uh, come up with their at-home program and has stressed uh, coordination and behavioral health because I think those are the areas where the friction is for us, is the coordination, the roles, the funding, and then the behavioral health aspect, which is so important. Uh, and, and where I'm going with this, uh, when we were in Senator Feinstein's office and we actually met with her homeless uh, legislative director and, and he, he said, absent new funding, it's a matter of trying to braid together the resources you have, the various funding sources and, and make, uh, stretch the dollars to cover the needs that you have. And, and so I see us doing that with uh, the additional CalAIM fund and, and the monies and the participation that you've done in the coordinated care. I, I feel like with the rise of COVID came the rise of encampments, and this was just a whole new thing that, that communities had to deal with, and it really was a challenge for the one-to-one -one placement of individuals into housing with our existing programs. And I'm gonna urge us to keep looking at what can we do with our city partners for the encampments, and what is it that we, what are the pieces that are missing right now? Is it the funding? Cities are putting up money for uh, uh, case management. Is it enough? Do we need to ask for more? Are there places that we can have uh, an RV park that is actually sanctioned or a tent camp? And what would it take to make that work? And I know these are tough questions and the funding, the long-term funding is, is usually the rub. But I don't see encampments going away anytime soon. So I think we have to continue to try and innovate and see where we can plug the holes. And I'm just hoping that the state with their initiatives will be a partner for us. So that's uh, all of the rest of my questions were asked. So thank you very much for the work that's been done. Let's keep, let's keep innovating. Thank you. And I would just uh, leave with the, especially the public with, with two things. One, you know, I know it can be extremely concerning and challenging to see an individual who's unhoused and out on the street. We frequently get contacted by neighbors and others. We appreciate, you know, the heads up. If they see someone in distress, you know, to be able to ensure they're connected to our system. You know, we have over 500 
clients prioritize for coordinated entry. We have over a thousand clients in our system uh, that we know who they are and, and have data on them. So when you see someone out there, it's highly likely we've engaged, we're aware, um, but we always appreciate the connection, especially if someone is having a, a, a challenging time. But please don't think you know, that if you see someone out there that, we're, that it means that we're doing nothing. I think that's sometimes an unfortunate conclusion that can happen when we see someone in these, you know, the most challenging life circumstances, but know that our community-based organizations, our county staff are doing everything we can, and if folks want to, if folks need help and you're unhoused or you know someone who's unhoused and need, needs help, 415-473-HOME is our number, 415-473-HOME. And hhshome at marincounty.org is our email. So please feel free to get in touch with us, and we will always follow up. Thank you very much. I'd like to open to public comment now. Uh, there's a number of people here in the chambers, and those of you who would like to speak and put your ideas into the mix, we welcome that. So now's the time if you would come to the podium. Uh, with any comments or points? Yes, Alan, uh, feel free to come right to the podium. Yeah, please, yes, and if you wouldn't mind uh, lining up just so we have a sense of how many there are or getting ready to line up. Uh, great, great, thank you. Great. If you'll give your name and everyone has two minutes and when everyone in the chamber has spoken, we'll go online. Okay. Thanks. Nice to be here for the first time in three years. And thank you, Matthew, for the wonderful captioning there. It's incredible. I, people with hearing problems like myself um, really do benefit from that. Uh, I just want to add... Um, the model that's being uh, produced in San Rafael right now by Vivalon, formerly Whistle Stop. Uh, I haven't heard much about that here today. I'm not sure I heard anything about that project, uh, the Healthy Aging Center. Um, I guess I was the first donor about 12 years ago when they announced they were going to do it, and that's how long it takes, 12 or 13 years. <laughs> But this summer, uh, it's supposed to be completed, and by the end of the year, they will have had their Section 8 uh, um, lottery, and it is a Section 8, project-based Section 8, that is, uh, and the lottery uh, hopefully will take up a number of the unhoused here in Marin. Um, although, as Lily has told us, uh, those lotteries are open nationwide, I guess. Um, so um, I just want to say that uh, this model that Vivalon is doing here, along with um, Eden Housing, uh, the first two floors, as you know, is going to be the center. They've raised um, 12 of the 15 million that they need for those two floors. And the Floor four to six is going to be 67 uh, units. And I toured the uh, uh, just a few days ago, 
and it's just an incredible uh, coming together of all the needs for supportive housing, which the ground floor will be uh, those services and so forth. And uh, I just urge people to use this as a model for what can be done in some of the towns and cities of Moran and the county. Thank you. Thank you. Next, please. your hand up first. Uh, <clears throat> my name is Bob Belichick. We, um, what you're getting are some photos that we've taken from, which I call the Hamilton Ammo Hill encampments, not the marsh. So referred to as the marsh is kind of unusual. But I, I will say that in terms of numbers, uh, and I'm out there every day, three times a day, walk the dogs out there. So I've, the numbers of people there has increased ever since we started with the pandemic. <clears throat> the number of encampments has increased. I'm not sure where they're going, but I know we get people from San Rafael. The biggest thing we have going, if you look at these, these pages, this, I want you to just leaf through these to see it. This to give you an idea of where it is. If you're down in the lower, lower part of the page, and right at about just off the center is a red roof building, that's the Marriott. That's the, that's one of the White line that's at the top, right above it. Oh, the white line, the white line right at, above that, that is the smart train line. The red line is the part that's city owned. And then all that green line, green area you go into, up above it and to the right behind the skate park. And once you get to past the big green area where it narrows down, that's all marsh. Right now, that's all flooded from the backup for the water going into Pacheco Pond. But the encampments are everywhere back there. There's one right across from the Safeway. The Safeway is the big white roof there. That encampment burned down. Uh, he burned down about five, six months ago. Yes. And he had been there for eight years. He has since moved, because I track this stuff. I watch him. I've seen him go at night with his four-wheel trolley carrying lumber and stuff. He is now on top of this hill in this corner. I could ask you to wrap up and yeah. maybe summarize. It's, um, just look through. The, this is what we have going on. The, encamp the encampments never, the city cleans them up. The city has put in three times now construction bins for them to put their stuff in. It doesn't go there. But our city of Nevada Public Works is doing a great job taking care of it as best they can. Thank you, and thank you for the the visuals too. Yeah, next please. Yeah, hi, my name is Stan Lappin and live in Nevada on the Hamilton area and talking about the same space and what we now call Marsh. And thanks to former Mayor Lucan, he understands vividly the problems we've been dealing with. Now, um, I included those handouts, as you can see, the, the Hamilton encampment's key comments. I'm not gonna go over that, you could read that. Um, but I do want to focus on what I see recommended steps for change. Um, the NIMBY uh, euphemism or acronym is something that I think is real. Uh, we don't see um, we don't see homeless anywhere down Sir Francis Drake all the way down to you know Ross and beyond. 
Um, it seems to be really focused in Novato. It seems to be focused in San Rafael and, and Sausalito. So it really is a county issue. I think we've all talked about that. Um, also, um, you know, there are certainly many services available in other areas, but I think the city, the towns and cities need to come together and financially support this, not just the county. Um, we, um, one of the things I've mentioned is that um, there are other, I think, examples of success stories, one of which is in Berkeley, uh, the Dorothy Day House was a not-for-profit that purchased a warehouse. I included the, their website. This has all been converted into multi-use uh, housing with all kinds of services that are just seem amazing. Um, I think there are sites that could be located throughout um, Marin County. We have the least populated area, probably one of the wealthiest counties. Uh, you could take these underutilized buses and consolidate that and take some of the bus terminals and actually make that into uh, mini uh, housing or mini homes. Uh, there are utilities associated there. It can be leveraged. Um, anyway, I'm out of time, but I wanted you to uh, have a chance to chat with you about it. Thank you. Thank you for your suggestions. Next, please. Good afternoon. My name is Nancy Kawada, and I'm a resident of Hamilton. I'm also the Hamilton HOA president. Gary, thank you so much for your presentation. That was really informative. I, I want to say one thing about communication. It is so important, and Gary, it's true. I mean, if we don't have any communication, then we perceive that nothing is happening. So I apologize for that, but that's the first thing that people jump to. I communicate with 825 residential homes, and I communicate this information to my um, constituents. So they do get the information, not just 200, but plus 825. Um, as we know, there's a severe homelessness issue in Nevada and in other areas as well. And the key thing about the, um, what you call the Marsh, the Hamilton area, and possibly Binford Road, is that these people are the most service-resistant people, and they have some of the highest addiction rates. So this is going to be a great challenge. And um, I'm not going to go over what's happening in the Hamilton area, but I do want to emphasize that I agree that there needs to be some transitional housing to permanent housing to get them out of that marshland area into some sort of transitional housing. Thinking about these people out there during the rain, it's just not acceptable. And as a county of Marin, we should not be allowing this. So I look forward to see what we're going to do in the future. And thank you very much. Yeah, if there's uh, any more, come on up. We've got more online. Good afternoon, Supervisors. Thank you, Gary, for your presentation. That was very informative. Uh, I'm John Watson from the Marin Center for Independent Living and want to thank uh, both of the presenters for their clear framing of uh, housing as an essential human need, which creates the foundation of a human right to it. Uh, speaking as someone who has been homeless in Marin County in the past, uh, I have to say that as marvelous as the services I hear of and uh, have the privilege of engaging with uh, uh, in my work uh, are, the public awareness of them is severely lacking. I, at the time I was homeless, could not have told you about any of these things or found any of these. A point in time survey, er, survey would not have captured me. I never touched a service. 
And I know that I'm not alone in that. And what this shows is that there needs to be much greater visibility for the county services in this area so that people know where to go, know how to connect to these services before they need them, so that it's a part of daily basic awareness. If you are at risk of losing your housing, this is who you call, this is how you save it, and if you lose it, this is how you get back in. And connected to this, an important section of all of this is that these services need the buy-in of the people participating. It will not stick on someone who is feeling cast out, who's feeling unwanted, all of this. And that's why I have to say, care courts and their impending implementation and sweeps of the encampments are completely counterproductive to the aim of serving, connecting people with resources, and respecting the needs of our community as they fight to be housed. Thank you. Thank you. Next, please. Good afternoon. Uh, I'm, my name is Marie Hoke. I also live in the Hamilton area, and I want to thank uh, Gary for all of the work that his team does. That was a really informative presentation, and I'm particularly excited to hear about all of the case management. Um, it, it, I've lived in Hamilton since 1999, and many of us are seeing the, the marsh area there as a uh, potential uh, or long-term attraction to homeless people? Like, how are we going to manage this over the long run to limit or minimize the number of new people who move into that area? And now that we have <clears throat> so much case management, I'd like to ask Gary if perhaps your case management people could talk to the people there and figure out what attracted them to that area. You know, homeless people are resourceful when they move, just like everyone else. And what is it about the marsh area that, that d made them decide to move there? And that will help us understand what we can do to make it less attractive, frank frankly. Um, uh, when people move, I'm a real estate agent, and when people move, they, they do try to figure out what's going to be best for them. They look at um, potentially who else is there, right? I mean, um, what are the, the location? Um, uh, community, etc. And I think the more that we can understand when people enter homelessness, how do they decide where to go? What are their options? Um, and uh, what characteristics of where they go might be make it difficult for them to get to move again? So that's part of the whole kind of um, uh, cycle there. And I think the more that, that we learn about that, the more that we can um, help people get into housing by helping them make those initial decisions in a way that will lead them to something better. Thank you. Thank you. If there's no one else in the chambers, we're going to move online now. We have a number of speakers. The first speaker is Clayton Smith. Please unmute. Given the figures you've presented, an 800-square-foot, two-bedroom apartment cost $750,000 built, factoring in capital costs at current rates and management maintenance expense. Each unit requires a $4,500 to $5,000 rent to achieve break-even cash flow. Anything less requires taxpayer subsidies. Every subsidized unit then becomes a drain on the available pool of taxpayer funding. 
which might be available for other public needs. This contributes also to increasing government deficits, adding to the inflation rate and interest rates, which are borne by the non-subsidized in the general public. <clears throat> Finally, the upcoming, uh, or the upcoming loss of global reserve currency status of the U.S. dollar is going to uh, challenge the continued ability of our government to um, offset the financial demands these programs have placed on the poorer nations of the world who uh, are themselves enmeshed in the currently enmeshed in the dollar system. This may be coming shortly to an end. Clearly, homelessness has become a very big business, which given the financial deterioration of the U.S. government, it's likely to have to be put on a diet going forward. And I would remind that affordable to one person is an unwilling subsidy to others. Thank you. The next speaker is Johnson Reynolds. Please unmute. Thank you. This is Johnson Reynolds. I live in the Canal area. I'm part of First United Methodist Church San Rafael, and I'm working with MOC. I'm not representing uh, MOC in this talk, but yeah, I, I see people on the streets in their carts, uh, in their tents. Some people have businesses they're doing under the expressway. So there's a lot of wisdom among the homeless too that uh, can contribute to solutions. So meeting with those people of the homeless community that can contribute to the solutions that we need. We need to have places where cars and vehicles can gather. We may need to have still encampments that are monitored and, and in health and safety in good shape. Uh, but uh, we need to, and we're thankful for the landlords that work uh, with uh, people that are low income and that, that kind of thing, and uh, the, uh, uh, the, the uh, uh, supportive housing that we need to provide and that kind of thing. But for, for the people that are homeless, another possibility would be the tiny homes. That's been presented to the San Rafael City Council study session on that. It's locating places where that can happen. And maybe uh, St. Vincent in the county, that was one suggestion that there might be that tiny homes or manufactured homes that would be an option for some people as a transition to getting affordable housing. Uh, and the issue is behavioral health services. The HOTS team and other People need to go and talk to people in the homeless community and in other communities to get a sense of what is needed for them and how to move forward. So thank you very much. Next speaker is Lucy Hollingsworth. Please unmute. Good afternoon. I'm Lucy Hollingsworth, senior policy attorney with Legal Aid of Marin. We are the only free legal services in Marin for tenants facing eviction. Lili, Gary, and our dedicated staff have been critical partners in our effort to keep low-income Marinites housed. Addressing homelessness and those precariously, <clears throat> precariously housed are two sides of the same coin. At Legal Aid of Marin, we are witnessing daily the displacement of seniors, BIPOC, and Latino families, 
and essential workers, many of whom end up in cars and encampments. We urge this board to stop the displacement now through strengthened tenant protections, limiting rent increases, and providing funding to support a Marin-wide rental registry and robust case management to keep tenants housed while long-term solutions are implemented. Thank you. The next speaker is Raleigh. Please unmute. Raleigh Capps, uh, Marin Association of Public Employees. On the question raised earlier about spending money on, um, on preservation versus the cost of new housing, although preservation is important, it alone is not sufficient because it's not, not to preserve housing, we need to increase the amount of housing and increase the amount of affordable housing. On the question of a subsidy of housing, let me note that I believe the largest single federal housing program in this country, which involves a huge subsidy of certain people, is known as the uh, home mortgage interest deduction, which allows people who are in a position to uh, have a mortgage to deduct the interest from their income tax. And in fact, I believe it allows people who have second homes to do so. Uh, my wife and I took advantage of that, not as a vacation home, we don't have one, but on our principal place of residence to help us be able to purchase a home. And so if we're going to complain about subsidizing housing, but we need to evaluate that huge subsidy. Of course, we have to subsidize housing because the market itself doesn't provide a price that is affordable for everyone. Uh, and there's nothing that says that the primary purpose of public policy is to maximize return on investment for those people who are in a position to make investments. The cost also, we have to look at the cost, not simply as how many dollars are spent in a public agency budget, but what's the cost of society to not have people housed. Uh, I don't know if you can come up with a precise dollar comparison, but I think it's common sense that having people unhoused uh, is not good for our community. Thank you very much. The next speaker is Eva. Please unmute. Um, thank you. What a stunning presentation. I don't think I've, I've heard a better uh, reenactment of the emperor's new clothes. Uh, Gary Najarus is is masterful I, I would like to point out um that if you go and talk to people in encampments and you say have has gary najari spoken to you they say who and then you show them a picture of him and no one has ever seen this guy um mr reese and the rest of her in hhs as well as lucy hollingsworth as well as uh, a whole bevy of people presented here as good guys were the people who helped facilitate and whitewash the SSA internment camp in San Rafael that sickened so many people. Uh, that was a majority black and Latino camp. And what we're seeing from media in Marin County is a consistent whitewash of uh, the how racialized this is. I mean, yes, uh, there are more unhoused white people in Marin County. It is still disproportionately black and Latino unhoused population. And they are undercounted because they have to remain so hidden because they're twice the target for law enforcement. And uh, there's been very little discussion of, of how law enforcement has abused even white unhoused uh, people, including elderly people. Um, Mike McGuire was cited as a good guy. He is actually uh, one of the three people along with Damon Connolly and Kate Collin who devised that SSA. And if Mr. Uh, Najarese wants to talk about accountability, 
Um, there was no excuse for him not to ask for an investigation of why there was never even any health inspection of that site under the freeway. I'd like to point out there's still no correction in the Pacific Sun reporting, which falsely claimed there were bathrooms uh, and, and uh, fresh water at that site. There never were. Uh, people ended up in ICU. People died in that site. And there needs to be an investigation if you are going to move forward in any way that does include accountability. We're at time and, now. And I've asked Thank you. Many times for an investigation. President Peters, there are no additional speakers in the queue. Uh, thank you. I'd like to bring it back to Gary and Matthew now to respond to some of the comments and any closing thoughts you want to offer. So maybe I'll just start, uh, and I just wanted to specifically talk about uh, the partnership with our cities uh, because I do think um, you know one of the themes here is, um, as CSAC was pointing out, this can't work without some a coordinated effort with the cities, the county, and the state, and. Um, and specifically around encampments, the cities have always had to manage encampments, and, and so we want to work with them in partnership. Um, two years ago, we created the matching funds for city-county partnership, um, and I just wanted to speak to a couple of uh, examples of that. So Mr. Reynolds mentioned San Rafael is interested in the tiny homes ex exploration. We have let the city know that we have $500,000 available to match uh, that and that they also can use the $500,000 that was secured from uh, Senator McGuire. So we stand ready to partner with the city when they're ready to move forward with that project. And then um, I think Novato has been a really good partner with us going for, you know, uh, in the area of the encampments. And I just wanted to go through some of the partnerships we've done. You know, uh, when the encampment funds at the state level first came out, we partnered with them to secure uh, approximately $400,000 to work on that encampment. We provided county funds for security around their encampment, $166,000. Um, in this year's budget, we have a million dollars available for partnership with Nevada. We've already allocated 500 in our county funds, and um, the McGuire funds just came in uh, just this week, actually, so that those funds will be available to the city of Nevada as well. And as uh, Gary mentioned, we are partnering with the city to apply for state encampment funds for the Hamilton Marsh, and that's in excess of a million dollars. So we'll see where that ends up. But um, we have, you know, we have tried to be good partners with Novato and, and look forward to continuing to work with them on these efforts um, going forward. Uh, I would just add that <clears throat> I appreciated the comment um, from Mr. Reynolds about the, you know, that there are lots of, there's a lot of wisdom um, among folks who are experiencing homelessness uh, in our community and a lot of creativity. Uh, you know, our point in time count shows that um, 30 to 40 percent of our population works at least part time or seasonally. Um, you know, there there is a vast resource there that is being untapped and we've been moving over the past year to include more lived experience voices uh, in the work that we do and in the decision making processes that we have and I look forward to continuing to expand that and continue to tap on the wisdom of folks who are in the community. I think we have reached the end of our time. I want to thank everyone for the presentations and the commentary uh, by the public and the board. And with that, uh, we will recess until tomorrow at 1 o'clock.
to wrap up the budget workshop. Thank you.